Hi, and welcome to Conversations to Connect. I'm Fenella Hawksley, and this podcast is brought to you in collaboration with the Campaign to End Loneliness. Social isolation and loneliness are widespread and can have a huge impact on health, happiness, and overall well-being. All people of all ages need connections that matter. And on this podcast, we will be hosting conversations to share insights, knowledge, and research to inspire change and to help people feel more connected. On today's episode, I am joined by my grandfather, Commander David Hawksley, OBE, born in August 1923. David joined the Navy at 18 in 1942 and fought in the Second World War and continued to work in the Navy until 1976 where he left and began a new career at BSI, British Standards Institution. On leaving BSI at 65, he became an international consultant for developing countries to help them develop their own standards institution. Whilst working in the Navy, David met his wife, Sheila, and they were married for 54 years. David became her full-time carer in 2000 for the last four years of her life, when Sheila passed away in 2004. Hi, Grandpa. Um, Welcome to Conversations to Connect. How are you? I'm fine at the moment. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining the podcast. So I wanted to ask you a bit about later life and finding purpose following the loss of your wife, Sheila. So I know that you you left your job in 2000 to care for Sheila full-time. What was that like as a full-time carer? Well, I concentrated on it and so it was... I was glad I could be of use in mm-hmm. looking after her, and I hoped she was comfortable. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that became, in a sense, your purpose? Yes, it did. For mm-hmm. four years, it was my purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did nothing else, really. Mm-hmm. And so, when Sheila passed away, how did you cope with the loss, the grief, and also, in a sense, finding a new sense of purpose, whilst also dealing with the fact that you've lost your life partner of 54 years well I didn't sort of sit down and say to myself I've got to deal with this mm-hmm. I think probably I was driven as much by instinct as by reason mm-hmm. but one's always at one's best when one's instincts go in the same direction as one's reasoning powers mm-hmm. and uh, so I thought I got to do a lot of things people were very kind and a lot of people asked me to go and stay with them which I did and mm-hmm. enjoyed I know you said that at the beginning, dealing with the grief was quite hard and that everyone in your family found it difficult to sleep for the first few... We did find it difficult, and I found it particularly difficult, and my doctor put me on sleeping pills, Mm -hmm. which I was on for about two months, Mm -hmm. three months. And then it wasn't until one of my invitations, a splendid one, to the island of Montserrat in the Caribbean, and I went out there, and for the first time for three months... I was able to sleep without any sleeping pills, mm-hmm. lulled by the noise of the tree frogs and the general feeling of being in the tropics. <laughs> Somehow I felt at home, which I hadn't done in England. Mm. And I don't know if that was a, uh, an enormously distant ancestral feeling of, of, of being in the tropics where we all started a very long time ago, or just it was completely different. Or do you think it's because you had so much experience in the Navy that you felt more... I had lived in the tropics a great deal, yes. Mm. So it was a a return to something else Mm -hmm. when I'd been thoroughly happy. And maybe also getting out of your... I suppose being in the same place where you are caring for someone day in and day out, 
and then being in that place when they're no longer there must be quite a shock. I think it was. I didn't think of it like that, yeah. but I think you're quite right in suggesting that, mm. yes. So then being somewhere completely different, you can just relax. It was utterly different. Mm-hmm. The Caribbean <laughs> is, is a bit, bit different to England, and uh, it was totally different, completely new experience, and and it made all the difference. So did you feel lonely after Sheila passed away? I I missed her. I don't know about feeling lonely. I probably, I, I was lonely, yes, of course, but largely because I missed her not being there. Yeah. I, as I said, I was asked out a lot, which, mm-hmm. which I appreciated enormously, and uh, I started to book holidays uh, rather daringly by myself, which I'd never done before. Were you 82? I was, a- I was 81 when she died. Mm-hmm. So in, in 2005, I, I was 82, and... Uh, I started, the first big holiday I booked was in Peru, and I went I went there, um, joining up with a group, and found it intensely interesting, and I enjoyed it enormously. Were you nervous booking a holiday on your own at the age of 82? I was rather, yes. It doesn't mean I was on my own, as it were, but I was by myself in a tour group of complete strangers. Mm-hmm. But I found that whenever I did that, there were people who were friendly and I wasn't sort of sitting at a table for breakfast all by myself and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. <laughs> so it, you went to Peru first. And yes. h- how did that feel, your first solo trip with a group of other travellers? Well, I just um, I f- forgot about everything unpleasant and enjoyed it enormously. I'd, I'd, uh, both uh, Sheila and I had both expressed an interest in Peru, but she couldn't go there because of the condition of her lungs. Mm-hmm. which is, of course, why she died. So I was not, as it were, leaping at the first opportunity to go to Peru, mm-hmm. but it was something we hadn't been able to do together. Because it was so high up? Because of the altitude, yes. Uh-huh. What did you do in Peru on this tour group? We had a, a, a very intensive tour of the whole, of the whole place, from, from Lima on the seacoast, rather cold and foggy, although it's on the equator almost. And then we... In stages, stopping the night halfway up, I went up to the top of the Andes and uh, over a pass 16,000 feet high and spent the rest of the time up there on the uh, on, on Lake Titicaca, <laughs> on the edges of it, and uh, got used to the altitude. First, it feels as if you're walking through treacle, but then slowly you get used to it and you don't take the stairs that will run, of course, and you you realise your limitations. Then we went on from there to Machu Picchu, which is a, a most extraordinary ancient city, which you've probably read about. Everyone has a sort of a place where one, it's so enigmatic. You don't know what it was for, really, but it was a, a, an extraordinarily beautifully made, sophisticated-looking city right up in the mountains. And then finished off in, in Cusco, the capital, the, well, it's not the capital Lima is, but the principal city in the Andes. And then back again down to the plain and, and wet, damp uh, Lima. How, and, old, how old was everyone on this trip? Uh, they were all much younger than me. Were you? I, I, so I'm, you were 82? I've never been on a trip. Uh, and all the ones I did then and, and later, where I, there was anyone any older than me. <laughs> um, but, what was the average age? I should think the average age was about 55. Okay. 
50, 55, <laughs> that sort of age, mm -hmm. 45. I mean, there were some quite young people in their late 20s. Mm -hmm. Were people surprised that you were 82? On the whole, I'm gratifyingly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so after Peru, did you when you came back from that trip, did you feel like that had given you a new lease of life, in a way, because you'd seen a whole new... Well, in a way place. it did, because I immediately started to book other trips. Mm -hmm. Where else um, did you go? Well, I think the next one I booked was the, the, the trip you can do around the north of Norway into the Arctic Circle with the Hurtigruten ferries. They are ferries, they go from port to port, all the way up the coast and then back again, stopping in ports at daylight alternately, so that although they, they stop at the same port on the way back, as they do going up to catch the traffic that wants to go down south rather than up north, it, 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 you don't experience the place twice because it's at night. Oh, wow. Uh, I enjoyed that very much. It was fascinating and I had been into the Arctic uh, during the war, but this was very comfortable Arctic. <laughs> and uh, I, I found it very interesting to get right up to the Russian border and see um, herds of wild reindeer and the Sami, the um, indigenous people of Norway. So they were there before the, uh, the, the present Scandinavians arrived from further south. And was this a boat trip? Did you feel like because you were on a boat, it also made you feel at home because it was like being back in the Navy? In a way it did, yes, mm. yes. You know, I love being at sea and I always liked being at sea in the Navy and I always liked it when we went to sea and, and didn't stay in harbour, mm. even though it was, for me then, of course, quite hard work. And I know you did something pretty impressive. So from 82, that's when you started travelling on your own. But at 89, you booked a round-the-world trip by yourself. Well, yes. Um, I don't know why you're laughing at that. I don't know, because most people would be <laughs> quite... I mean, that's quite a brave thing to do. Were you nervous? Um, no, I wasn't nervous, but I, I, I got trail finders to, to help me do it. So I wasn't exactly backpacking. I was Well, I was in a way, but I, I'd arranged for, for places to stay mm -hmm. all the way around the world. Mm -hmm. I'd arranged for transport to meet me at airports and so on and while that wasn't possible everywhere and I did have to fend myself for myself a bit it, it wasn't I wasn't sort of tramping from place to place with a and did, pack of my bag didn't you have friends in Australia and yes India? part of the reason was that I would then call on people in Australia and do a, a bit of a tour of part of Australia and then a, 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 an old naval friend in the Indian Navy and stay with him in, in, in Bombay so where did you go on your around-the-world trip? I went to San Francisco, which I'd never been to before. I spent three three nights in each place, which gave me two whole days. That's not days. that long. <laughs> well, it gave me two whole days plus a half day at each end. Three nights in each place, and where did you go? I went to San Francisco. Then I went to Oahu in the Hawaiian Islands, um, Honolulu, Waikiki Beach, and then on to Fiji and... I stayed in an island resort in Fiji with little sort of Fijian huts for, for one's bedrooms. And uh, that was rather fun. Then to Sydney and uh, met up with Australian friends and did a bit of a tour there. And then on to Singapore where I spent the night and uh, 
did a little bit of sightseeing, seeing how many changes had been since I was last there. So she was in about 1958 mm-hmm. or something? No, no, I'd been there working uh, for developing countries, mm-hmm. although it wasn't very developing, in about 1995. But I had, I had lived there on occasion when I was in the Navy, so I enjoyed seeing the differences. It's completely, it completely unrecognisable, the building going on and the reclaimed land. The sea was going further and further south. And then I called in at, at Bombay and stayed with my f- friend in India, and then on to England. Wow, <laughs> it's quite it, impressive. It took, about, it took about six weeks. Six weeks of staying in places three nights only for only three nights each time. Well, ex- except for when I was tying up with friends in Australia mm-hmm. and India, yes. Wow, did you feel tired at the end of it? No, I just wanted to go on doing it. <laughs> I felt sad and finished. Wow. I've never really, I'm afraid, felt excited at the thought of getting back here to England. It's, it's usually raining. <laughs> That's true. I know that you said you, when you became Sheila's full-time carer, you, you left your job. So after Sheila passed away, you also carried on working, or was it volunteering? Or you I, started I, volunteering? I, I volunteered. I was um, over 80 by then, and my CV doesn't look very good with that, with that date down, <laughs> and so I, I had already started. Well, I'm sure well, it looked very good. You've had three different careers. <laughs> <laughs> I had already started while she was still alive to work for the Woodland Trust. Okay, which, which, what were um, you doing for the Woodland Trust? Well, I rather hoped when I volunteered they'd give me a wood to look after or something, but they didn't. They <laughs> asked me to go around talking about the Woodland Trust um, and raising money, which of course um, they need, and I did that and. I found it interesting because I prepared a, a lecture with a lot about the last ice age and the ice ages and how that affected our woodland enormously, the way it's travelled all the way from uh, from where it is now to down to the Mediterranean and back again about every 120,000 years while we've had an ice age. And it has, of course, affected the uh, woodland enormously. It's It's weirdly portable and tough and so much so stronger much stronger than the tropical jungles which can be destroyed forever so easily it's very difficult to destroy ancient um, temperate woodland forever it, it goes again if you cut it down even if you cut it down yes so there's a lot of um, of, of, of allowing of, of, of creating more woodland is simply giving it a chance to grow and encouraging it so did you continue working for the Woodland Trust while you were looking after Sheila? I did, yes. And then, um, because it just meant an hour or two talking. Mm-hmm. I, I continued after she died for a bit, but uh, I found that um, I had to alter my lecture materials. And by then, I'd talked to most of the people around where I lived, and uh, they didn't want to hear it twice. <laughs> So then you started volunteering for the RNLI? I started volunteering. I'd been a member of the RNLI for, for years because I had a boat. Is that the Royal National Lifeboat Institution? Institution? Yes. I'd had a boat, and so I belonged to it, but I felt um, I, I, I ought to volunteer to help it run after that, and I did, and did quite a lot of collecting and joined the local fundraising branch. In Bournemouth? In, in Southbourne of Bournemouth. And then found it, it expanded a bit, and in the end it was Christchurch and Bournemouth. 
I went through the various things one can do as a committee member and then a treasurer, box secretary, secretary, chairman, and then found someone. I was getting much too old for it by then, so I found some people who were younger than me to do all those but jobs. How long? No, because you you worked for them for a really long time, and there was one moment where you were chairman and treasurer and secretary all at the same time. Yes. Okay, so um, three roles. It, it and what, what did you what do you do as part of the Christchurch and Bournemouth branch of the RNLI? Well, by now I don't really do very much except wave a bucket about occasionally trying to collect money. <laughs> um, but I've, I've been kicked upstairs to be. You pre- are ninety nine. <laughs> I've been kicked upstairs to be president of the branch, which means I don't have to do anything. So, so what's your actual title? President. So you're president of the RNLI. Yes, it sounds okay. wonderful. <laughs> so. Did you start volunteering for the RNLI in 2004? In 2005, actually. Okay. While volunteering, you were fundraising and, and raising money for the Bournemouth branch. Yes. In different ways. Yes. Through that events or through collections. Collections, uh, flag days, yes. Collections outside big stores. And what do the RNLI do for people that aren't aware? The RNLI is the... Is the, the the Sea Rescue um, Organisation of, of the United Kingdom, or of the British Isles, actually. It covers Ireland, too. And uh, we provide the boats um, that may be required to rescue people, and we go out and rescue them. We also have beach lifeguards who do the same thing and work with the boats, of course. And uh, it's completely voluntary. We receive no money at all from government or public bodies. It's entirely self-funded and the crews are all volunteers and we we, we basically rescue oh, thousands of people every year um, but being rather careful to count exactly those whom we, who would have died if we hadn't rescued them. How many? And that is usually about 350 or 400 by the lifeboats and about 150 by the lifeguards from the beaches. And they would all have died definitely if we hadn't rescued them. And that is our target, to stop people drowning. Whatever the reasons, we never we never criticise them for being a bit silly. <laughs> um, we, we're trying to row across to France and that sort of thing. We, mm-hmm. we, um, we just rescue them, that's it. Why did you want to volunteer for the RNLI out of other charities that you could have? Well, I, 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 I could see how very useful it was um, from practical, practical lessons. I'd, uh, with, with a small boat, I'd helped rescue people once or twice. In a very minor way, I don't mean they'd have drowned, but <laughs> they'd run out of fuel, that sort of thing. And I could see how, how dangerous the sea is. Well, I've always known that because of my time in the Navy. It's not a sort of theme park, it's, uh, it's wild. Yeah. And I suppose living so close to the sea as well, you have that connection with it. I suppose so, yes. I, as you say, I've lived very close to it now for years and years and years, counting the Navy. And uh, you, you, you get a, a sense of the reality of it after, uh, after some time and you can see just how dangerous and how at times safe it is. But it's never, never something you can trust for a minute. Yeah, it, it's powerful. <laughs> you have to understand the sea's power. It's very powerful and it's unexpected. Mm. And
and you can look at a, a, a bit of beach or, or some rocks for half an hour and nothing happens and then suddenly a very big wave will wash all over it and would have washed you away if you'd been standing there. Yeah, I had that when I went to Kerala and was surfing. One day the sea can be completely calm and surfing's fun and the next day it was it, it, so scary I had to get out of the water. It's very dangerous, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask, so do you feel that in in being part of the RNLI and working for, for so long for them, you've been you've become part of a community? I well, I hope so. Um, uh, I, I can't say I made that Conscious. that decision deliberately, but um, yes, I did. Of course, I did, and uh, which I hadn't felt about at all. Um, I, somehow, if you move about a lot you don't feel much of a community except with the people you're with at the time. And uh, I'd rather lost that when I stopped working. And it, yes, it reconnected me with with people. Because I know that obviously being in the Navy, that's a huge community for... How long were you in the Navy? I was in, in 35 years. Oh yes, I felt absolutely lost when I left it. I'd, I had to surrender my identity card somewhere the nearest naval establishment. And I'd had an identity card since I was 16 uh, because civilians had them during the war. And then I joined the Navy and had one and suddenly I, I didn't have any identity. I felt absolutely lost. Um, I've never understood people who don't want identity cards. I think it's rather nice to have one then you know who you are. Oh, And so you felt like you didn't know who you were anymore when you left the Navy? Yes, sort of. For a bit, but I joined BSI as as I've said, and and I found that was a very nice place to be. And so, how nice did people. you cope with that, with losing your identity card and losing your naval identity? Well, within a year or two, I'd got completely used to working for BSI yeah. and and the company that they had produced, and it really meant to me when Sheila died that I thought I got to belong to something. I I, I didn't want just to be by myself, living by myself doing nothing particular. And uh, then I also started to volunteer for Christchurch Priory to act as a, a guide and occasional steward. And um, When did you start doing that? I started doing that in 2005 too. So, okay. I, I'd always been interested in its, well, since I moved here, in its history. It's an extraordinary old building. So I... I, got, I really enjoyed taking people up the tower and into the wonderful roof space above the false ceiling, which is a sort of window into the late 13th century. So uh, you do tours of Christchurch Priory? I did, yes. I did tours, and I also acted as a steward on alternate Wednesdays. It wasn't very difficult. <laughs> and, um, and I still do that. I don't do tours, I... I, I originally, when I went up the tower with people, I'd stop every now and again to ask them if they were all right, because it's a lot of stairs. And I realised that I was getting a bit over it when the, they stopped every now and again and asked me if I was all right. <laughs> and, and so I stopped. How many stairs is it? It's something like 198. Do you still do them? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, not after that signal that um, I wasn't quite up to it. I feel like a sense of purpose and having a mission 
has always been very important to you. Is that something that you've consciously thought about or you've just always felt like you wanted to do something useful and important? I think it's, I think I wanted to do something useful. It didn't matter if it wasn't important, but useful. I suppose the more useful, the more important, but um, uh, the usefulness. And again, I think that's probably a tribal instinct. And as I think I've said, um, we're at our happiest when our instinct is the same as our, our reason, our reasoning, and they produce the same result. And it did in that case, which is to belong to something. So the instinct is to do something of value and to belong? I think so. It's part of our old tribal instinct that we've had ever since we were the equivalent of baboons. And do you feel like you did manage that with the RNLI and with your work at the Priory? I've never sort of thought consciously about whether I managed it or not. Um, it's what I did. And I suppose it could be said I did manage it, but I've never thought, oh, that's all right, I managed that. Because mm. it doesn't work like that. But I suppose you consciously made an effort to build community around you and to do that in a way that is volunteering and working with other people who also live close to you and care about the same things. Yes, yes, I suppose so, yes. Mm. So that was in 2005. We're now in 2023, so it's been 18 years that you've been volunteering yes. with the Priory and the Royal National Lifeboat Association. Yes. That's a that's a long time. You still volunteer for both of them. Well, yes, but as I've said, I really do very little for the RNLI, <laughs> except if, if, if I can, without being too much of a nuisance, because I've walked with two sticks and I need Well, the only help. reason you got demoted from treasurer was because carrying 15 kilograms of coins isn't very safe. <laughs> oh, well, no, I, I had an accident doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't robbed. And it's robbed. not demoted. I, it's promoted. I, I wasn't robbed. It just fell over and, and uh, <laughs> tried to hang on to the coins instead of saving, saving myself. Saving yourself. Oh no. However, that, that was all right. It's all over now. <laughs> so you are now ninety nine. What do you do to to keep that sense of purpose and community around you? Well, I I, I suppose because I still do belong to the RNLI and and uh, I still do work occasionally for the Priory. I've got very nice neighbours. I, I, I probably belong less and less to the community, really, except possibly by now, because I'm so old, I, I may be a sort of mascot for some of it, I don't hear. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think your neighbours value you as part of the community. <laughs> I know that you're celebrating your 100th birthday this August. That's very impressive. If I'm still here... Don't say that! <laughs> what, what are you going to do for it? Well, I'm, I'm giving a big family party. Um, I hope people will come and enjoy it. An awful lot of it will be my, be my immediate family. I find I've got 28 descendants and their partners. Which is Quite a lot. lot. <laughs> yeah. Great-grandchildren. Great, uh, yes, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I haven't got any great-great-grandchildren yet and it would be a bit unseemly um, if I did. What do you feel like you've learnt in a hundred years of life? Nearly a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I've learnt, oh, uh, I suppose to respect other people and their opinions and, and their abilities. 
to be tactful, to try not to hurt other people's feelings. I've learnt all sorts of things which I wish I'd known when I was younger. From that point of view of how to behave, it becomes instinctive as you get older, and uh, with a bit of luck it's instinctive in the right direction. Um, and so that I think I think really what you learn is to get on with people. That's what matters most. Um, human relationships, it's, it's what matters most in our life. And uh, I hope I've learned a bit about that. I think just learning that human relationships are what matters most is an important lesson that I, people don't learn. I, I think so, yes, yes. Maybe we've prioritised the wrong things for quite a long time before learning. Well, we that. have to prioritise um, living, making a living, earning enough money to to keep oneself going and one's family. And uh, those, actually, it all comes down to getting on well with people because the better you get on with people, the, the, the more successful you'll be. Um, it, it, it also comes down, of course, to expertise in particular things because that helps you to get good jobs. But um, the, the, the vital thing is to get on with other people. It's more important than anything else. Um, well, thank you so much. We we always end this podcast on two questions. So the final que the final two questions. The first question is, when did you last feel lonely? Um, I would I wouldn't like to say that I hadn't stopped feeling lonely at times. Um, you do. Uh, but I don't feel sort of indiscriminately lonely. I miss people when they're not here, um, both um, people who've died and people are still here, but they go away. Um, and then I don't see them for a bit, and then I do. So that you never stop a tendency to loneliness, but you have a different idea about loneliness when you're my age, because when you're young, you're lonely because you feel left out of things. Um, your friends are all having a good time, or the people who like to be your friends are having a good time, and you're not, and and you're left out, and that's the the worst bit of loneliness to the young, the feeling that if if only they were more popular or or something, they would they would not be lonely. Well, you don't feel that by the time you're my age. You, you, um, it either happens or it doesn't. So it's a different feeling, and it's a it's it's a less unpleasant feeling. And what advice would you give to help someone feel more connected? And just on that, so do you think that you become more used to being alone when you get older? Yes, definitely. But I'd advise anyone who does feel lonely to, to join, join things, deliberately join them. It sort of goes against the grain a little bit, I don't know why, but... Um, <clears throat> You can join things. You can join U3A classes, for instance. At University uh, of the Third Age? Uh, University of the Third Age. And I, I did, actually, not because I'm feeling lonely, but because I thought I would. What I, did you learn? I joined French classes. I'd always been trying to do better and better French, and uh, I started during the war. And uh, I got quite good at write, reading and writing it, but I could never 
do what I really want to do, which is converse with the French people, because um, I don't understand a word they're saying. <laughs> and you don't learn that in classes. You, you need to have a French pen pal, or like a, someone you, you who need a French with. mother or a French father, that's the ideal <laughs> thing. And I'm sorry, I wasn't Or a French, partner. But, yes, <laughs> or a partner, yes. I forgot as well, you also started piano lessons again, and try and took grade seven... Oh, I started piano. I sort of ducked learning piano when I was young. I kept failing out of it. And I, when I was 70, I, I thought I'd missed something. So I did start taking piano lessons. And the only way I could make myself do it was by the grade system, because that made me pass an exam. And yes, I did work up to grade seven, and then I took eight, and I got fewer and fewer marks every time I did it. I'm sad they and didn't pass. I realised after a year of, of failed attempts that it was trying to tell me something which was that's it wasn't it just that your hands didn't move fast enough no i couldn't i couldn't um, read far, i couldn't read read music fast enough what age did you try grade a 80 mm-hmm. and i tried again when i was 81 and it, well, it didn't um didn't, didn't work. But you did climb Machu Picchu, so I think... <laughs> oh, okay. Machu Picchu, yes. <laughs> okay, so to help people feel more connected, you would recommend joining things, whether that's a group, a volunteer group, learning new skills. I think that's true because when you join a group, especially something that you go to regularly, you build relationships over time and you've got a routine, so it means that you will be around people at this time every week. Yes. And the relationships will build, even if it takes six months. Because relationships do take longer to build than we think they do. It does. But when, when you finally somebody says, I, I, I hoped you'd be here yesterday and you weren't sort of thing, you really feel you belong and it's nice again. So it, it's, it's nice to belong to something. And that again is back to our tribal instinct, of course. So true. I found that in a CrossFit gym in Paris, in my boxing gym in Brixton. Yeah. Yes. There's... There's a place where you feel like people know that you're there and they appreciate you being there and yes. they would notice if you're not there. They do. That, that's exactly it. And when the minute that happens, you feel at home. Mm-hmm. Aw, well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been so lovely. I have loved it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to your 100th birthday party. <laughs> um, so with my fingers crossed, am I? <laughs> thank you.